welcome to the Karen Kenny Show. This is the place where we take a no bullshit look at life's little lessons. Here, together, we find the spiritual glory in even the most wicked hard story. This is a journey from fear back to love and how we can find our greatest strength and happiness in some of the most unlikely places. I believe that if you're willing to change your mind, you can totally change your life. So, are you ready to rewrite your story and choose to live free? Let's do this. Hey, you guys. Oh, my God. I am so excited for this guest <laughs> on the Karen Kenny Show. So, um, we know each other, like she and I are friends, but I'm going to, I'm going to treat her like she's like a super duper official guest, which she is because the work that she does, you guys in the world is so fucking important, so incredible, so impactful. I have so much respect for my guest, Suzanne Debuse. And, uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit about her and you guys know me. I keep it real deal. Holy field. I keep it like wicked down to earth. I don't ever usually read somebody's bio, but this is really important to me that I get it right. Because, uh, Suzanne, like I said, is doing really important work at, um, what I consider one of my causes. And you guys know, I talk about this all the time, like be the helper, like what particular things, like whatever your divine assignment is, right? So my causes that I donate to or donate my time to or volunteer, whatever, send money to, uh, these causes are like direct, like uh, what I would call individual curriculum assignments. And so Suzanne is the CEO of the Gene Geiger Crisis Center in Newburyport. I think they also have an office in Amesbury and I'll let her tell you all about that. So I'm just going to read a blip, a little blip of my friend, and then I'm going to let her, uh, I'll shut my big fat mouth and let her talk. So, uh, so Suzanne, she joined the Jean Geiger crisis center in like 95. Um, she's been its chief executive since 97, right? So boop, quick right up the ranks. Cause she kicks ass at what she does. Okay. She's credited with developing and administering. And this was one of the things when I read this about her and got to know her more. Um, I was like, just so happy that there's powerful women, uh, wicked smarty pants like her in the world who aren't afraid to go and talk about the tough things and do the tough things. Um, but she is credited with developing and administering domestic violence programs that are informed by the needs of the survivors and are comprehensive and effective. Um, and so Suzanne, um, I'm going to let you talk a little bit about like officially what you do a little bit about the Jean Geiger crisis, and then we're going to um, kind of jump into uh, more of the personal stuff. But like, first of all, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you. It is such a true pleasure. I mean, first of all, you know, I'm a huge fan of yours. Aww. I love you. I love your perspective of the world and I love your positivity. So it is a true honor to be here with you and your guests. Thank you, sweetheart. Um, so the Jeannie Geiger Crisis Center, our mission is truly to empower individuals and engage communities to end domestic violence. And what I really love about the work that we're doing is that we have moved far beyond uh, just answering a hotline call or standing with a woman in court to get a restraining order. All those things are important and we still do that work today. Yes. But I think part of, you know, when you talk about your connection to the divine and what your divine assignment, you know, for me, I think it has always been because I was in an abusive relationship. Yes. Um, 
it has always been about how do we truly show up? How do we truly engage with survivors and understand what it is each one of them needs to move through the process? Some people want to come to us for like six weeks, go to support group, maybe get help with the restraining order, and they're gone. Other people might be here three or four or five years, depending on what's happening for her and her kids. So I think about our work in four different ways. And um, I used to talk about it as a three-legged stool, but it's really a four-legged table. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, we do survivor services. So that's everything from uh, we have an on-staff attorney. We provide uh, emergency and transitional housing. We have support groups. We do economic empowerment work. We have therapists that work with mom and their kids. Mm. We have a really, I think, a growing extensive um, trauma program for kids because they're Ugh. not only are you intervening in the trauma in their life, but you're also helping them reshape how they think about themselves and how they think about what's normal in the world? Is it normal to just, you know, go screaming and yelling and kicking and screaming when you don't get, you know, when they see their dad do that to their mom, what are they learning about what it means to be a woman in the world, what it means to be a man in the world? So, I mean, that's, that's our opportunity to really help support uh, the non-defending adult, which is typically the mom. Uh, to really help her kids with those issues. And then uh, the other piece that we do is our domestic violence high-risk teamwork. That's part of our survivor's work. And that's really looking for those uh, victims who are at highest risk of being physically Mm -hmm. assaulted or killed Mm -hmm. and then intervening before that happens and really working with our community partners to make sure they take care of him so we can take a really good care of her. And when you say community partners, you mean like um, cops in the law? Like what can you? Law enforcement, the courts, the DA's office, uh, Mm -hmm. probation. You know, we need them to do their job so we can do our job. Amen. And it's also part of, you know, we can't do this work by ourselves. It really requires a change in the system. Yes. So, you know, whether you're talking about oppression or racism or sexism, you know, all of these things exist in institutions. So if you're not working on an institutional level to change those things, nothing is ever going to change. Um, So there's our survivor services. And then we also have prevention services where we work with kids in elementary, middle, and high school Mm -hmm. to really question, what are you learning about what it means to be a man in this culture? I mean, do you want to be? Yes. Like have that conversation and, you know, hopefully support the conversations that are also happening at home by, by, you know, kind of carrying that through into their school day. Um, We're working with girls in our Girls Inc. program that really works to inspire all girls to be strong, smart, and bold. Which I love. Love. And I think about, you know, my own life and we can, you know, get to that later, but I think about when I was 10 or 11 or 12 and really feeling kind of alone in the world, it would have been extremely beneficial to me to have a group of girls who cared about me, who supported me and other adults in my life who could have mentored me. And I think I would have made some really, I made lousy decisions growing up and I could have made much better ones with just a little bit of help. But you know, yeah. And cause I think back then what, like what, we're now in a culture where what, whether you call it, I mean, it, the name keeps changing from helicopter parenting to bulldozer. Par- 
the parenting we got in the 60s and 70s, it's a little different. It was yeah, like, get out of the house. Don't come back till sundown. We don't want to see you. We don't want, like, we love you, but beat it, kid. So we were yep. like criminals on the street. Like, we were just running around getting into all shenanigans. Nobody was watching us. I mean, right? I know you can relate to this. Absolutely. We had our yeah. favorite corners. We knew where to go when it was raining. We knew where to go when it was cold. I mean, that's truth. We know where to go where there was booze or a pot or pills that's or right. sex or fun or trouble. We yep. were there. We were there. <laughs> right. We could sniff that crap out. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. um, and the other piece that we do is we're also working with abusers. So we have an intimate partner abuse education program. See, this is so, so powerful. I'm sorry. I get so excited. It's like, this is what I'm talking about. When you say, oh, we do things a little bit differently. This is like what I would call like kaleidoscope outreach. You hit so many facets and I think it's so easy to like look at abuses like this is why i love that you're talking to the kids and you're talking to the boys because i believe there's like generational trauma that just gets passed down like most i i mean you know this i don't know this but my gut instinct is that most abuses come from a family where they saw this like not every like not all abuses just all of a sudden be, become abuses like isn't it sometimes or a lot of times a learned behavior Six, so the, I think the latest stat is 60% of children who become abusers or victims witness domestic violence at yeah. home. So when you're talking about, you know, there's a, there's a saying in my world that is hurt people hurt people. Yes. So uh, the, the piece about batterers. So I feel like for the most part, <laughs> I hope no one gives me hate mail on this, but I think for the most part, batterers this is learned behavior it's yes. a sense of entitlement it's toxic masculinity i mean there's yeah. lots of reasons that men feel like they can do this to women sure and but the sooner we can intervene and change the messages and actually create empathy yes and so when i think about when i look at our boys prevention program and i'm thinking about so can we identify boys now that are already on this road mm we take our learning from working with adult men offenders and also marry that with the healing work that we do with survivors because i feel like if you know I, i'm gonna i i would say the vast majority of abusers mm -hmm. if you could take them back in time and heal whatever that was i agree it's a message whether it was the way they were treated, whether it was w the way they were made to feel, and that gave them this sense of entitlement that if you don't love me, I will punish you. Yes. And so to help them heal so that they can be the whole loving men that they want to be. And um, so anyhow, so that's, that's a, an overview of all of our work um, that we're doing right now. We also train communities across the country in the homicide prevention work. So it's yeah, that's so important. So that's what we're doing as well. Yeah, I think it's so incredible. And I think that um, I learned more about that program when, when I did the fundraiser for you guys a couple of years ago, the, the yoga class and thing that I did. And I'm so drawn to that because obviously like no brainer, uh, my, you know, my own history, like my mother was murdered. And I often say, when people are like, how could you have forgiven him? 
and I, I say, uh, I say a couple of things and I say, well, when you understand somebody's story, their backstory, when you know somebody's story, it's, it's, it's wicked hard not to at least at the very least understand them or to um, forgive them. And I said, once you know somebody's story and you can start, if you stop seeing them as a monster and you start seeing them as maybe a kid, a little boy who, who knows what, and I, and that was part of my healing process and forgiving the guy that beat my mother to death was uh, finding out more about him. And when I started to put some of the pieces together of his home life, I was like, oh, now this in no way says that I, I think it's okay what he did, right? Right. I, justice had to be served, but I can understand and people go out of their minds you know people i and i and i do believe that he was probably one of those young boys who definitely had some entitlement but there was something wrong in that family for and i and, and I, i'm like i write about it, i'm writing about it in my memoir but um he had two other brothers and uh one got murdered both so two brothers got murdered and then the guy that killed my mother became a murderer. So, you know, there's some stuff that happened. Down yeah. in that family. Okay. So when you have an understanding of people and when you're, when you're willing, like you said, th those words, empathy and compassion and a willingness to kind of get uncomfortable. And that's the thing. Like we just want to take the shit that makes us uncomfortable. We want to judge and label because that's actually what makes us feel safe. But there's so much more going on underneath the surface. And, and the, the bottom line is how can we help people and make more women and children safe and men too, because you know, believe it or not, people sometimes what like men end up being the victim of abuse. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. And um, so the last thing, oh, just the interesting paradigm here or the paradox here is um, you know, so women who are in abusive relationships, or I would say anyone who's in an abusive relationship, sure. One of the reasons we stay for so long is because we're hanging on to those initial feelings of love. And because we know their story, yes, we begin to forgive the abuse and, and learn how to always put ourselves second. Yes. And to, so th there's an interesting, so I just want to name that because that is not what I'm ever advocating for. I never think that someone who is a, who's, in an abusive relationship right now should be thinking about um, empathy and compassion for her, for the person who's abusing her sure. more than she should be thinking about for herself. Yes. But I think as healers, we need to be looking at why are these guys so yes. broken and what can we do to avoid that? I'm so glad you made that point for multiple reasons because right, exactly. There's a difference between, I always say, um, you know, um, we all want to love each other, but sometimes the most loving thing that you can say to somebody is no. Right. Right. And so we don't, we, we're not gonna, we're not gonna coddle the abusers into being like, oh, because you had a tough backstory, this is okay what you're doing. Like, right. fuck no, that's not what we're saying. And systematically or holistically, we do have to look at all the different facets of that because there is something that is going wrong. Like anytime a person thinks it's okay, like it's so fascinating and I, this is going to sound so crazy, but my sweetie listens to this podcast and it's all about the history of like serial killers and mm. almost all serial killers. When you hear their backstory, something very wrong went on in their home. Yes. Yeah. In, in the early developmental years, 
that made them like, it's like some people are just born without, I would say the synapses or the connection. So they become sociopathic, but a lot of it is behavior that gets so twisted. And it's really just young people who are suffering. And that's the work that I do as a spiritual mentor. People always say to me, Oh, you work with adults. You don't work with kids. And I said, well, actually they're, they're in adult bodies. But what I'm really dealing with is like wounded, like little, like, you know, people who are actually like wounded little kids that never actually face those things or weren't able to for whatever reason. So I always flip things like, because my whole thing is story to your glory. It's like taking the story and taking the golden nuggets from it, like moving from the personal to the universal spiritual messages. And so I flip that hurt people, hurt people. I'm like, I do the work that I do because happy people tend not to hurt people. And so I'm trying to help people kind of to to heal that stuff and move through. But there was something um, else that you said that I wanted to like um, touch upon. And I think it's so important. So I remember when I first left California and I moved to New Hampshire and I was looking to be helpful in some way. So animals have always been one of my causes, um, but domestic violence is also something that's important to me. And there was, it's no longer called this, but at the time there was an organization in um, Rochester in the Portsmouth area called A Safe Place. And um, I remember working there and so much of it was I also wanted to be educated because I think so many people don't understand why it's so easy to judge a woman who's in that situation and say, why do they stay? Why do they keep putting, I'm doing air quotes at home, you guys, those of you who are listening and not watching, why do they stay? Why, why, why don't they get out? There's so much judgment put. And so can you just like briefly talk about maybe the psychology of what that's, what's happening so that people can start to understand and stop being so judgy about it and, and try to like have a little more understanding about what's happening. I do want to talk about that. And first of all, can you see me? Yes. You can, because yeah. I lost, I lost visual with you, but um, oh. I'll, I'll deal with that in a minute. Okay. Um, so there are so many reasons and there are so many reasons that, that women stay. And I'm just going to just acknowledge, you've already mentioned it, that men frequently are the abuse victims. Yes. Um, but for the purpose of our conversation, I'm going to use the pronouns, you know, she, yes. he, and, but please know that I realize that this can be anybody. Yes. So you fall in love and uh, you know, I, people say all the time, if he hit you on the first date, you'd never go on the next date, but that's not what's happening. What's happening is what happens when anyone falls in love. You are, you know, everything is wonderful. Everything is glorious. He loves you. You love him. He makes you feel good. All those endorphins are going, all that's fantastic. And then over time, there's an erosion and it's a slow erosion. And so culturally, we always had that expectation, right? That, that, oh, well, you're in the honeymoon period. It's going to, you know, it's going to simmer down. You're going to get to be an old married couple. So there's an expectation, I think, on our part that that's going to happen, that that's a natural part of the cycle of a relationship. And then the next piece is the what typically happens is there is emotional abuse that you know you're called lazy or fat or ugly or whatever but it's a slow chipping away at your soul yes and so the slow chipping away of the soul you know if you think about the soul i think about it is there's a little bit of armor there there's a little bit of uh caretaking and then so this emotional and verbal abuse begins to chip away at that armor And then you're pretty exposed. You're pretty um, 
vulnerable to that next level of domestic violence or abuse, which is uh, really undercutting who you think you are, what you're capable of, and, and you slowly but surely lose your sense of who you are. You begin to adopt and believe the things that he's saying is true. And typically they're things, you know, they're pretty universal kinds of things like Number one, don't ever tell anybody what goes on behind closed doors. This is family business and no one's going to believe you. Um, I have all the credibility. I will take the house. I will take the cars. So in addition to feeling really lousy about yourself, really hopeless about the relationship and being threatened, overtly told, and guess what? No one's going to believe you. No one's going to help you. And I'm going to take everything that matters to you. Okay. So can I interrupt really quick? Because I think I have an important question. Um, fingers, okay. crossed, fingers crossed. I'm going to just text John and ask him to come in and get my visual back up. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be cool. I can see you. So I'm looking happy. So I feel a little right. selfish right now. But um, keep going. Yeah. No problem. So my, my question is that, um, but don't you think, so how, how would I say this? Like, and again, I can only do, I'm like at this perspective of, of a 50 year old, but when I was younger, like I think to myself, if somebody started to come at me hard about like, you're, you're not like whatever mean thing that they were going to say to me at the time, mm-hmm. why do you think it is that, um, and, cause we're using this pronoun women, these women, the she's right. Why do we give our power away on some level. Why do we believe it? Why do we make it true? Is it because we've thought to us, first of all, I believe that it's possible because we already have a story about ourselves that mm-hmm. we're not worthy and lovable. And so that, that, that starts to get really chipped at. And it's like feeding into something that we've already believed about ourselves. And then the second thing is, because um, we don't really question it. And I think that I think the mind scramble there, what's really hard for women is because you're operating on the premise, and I could be totally wrong, that this is a person who loves me. And so if they're saying it, it must be true. Yes, yes absolutely true. So um, I also think about the uh, frog and a big pot of cold water. Yes, you just turn it up, up gradually, man. Yeah, and then also, you know, going back to that cultural thing about um, that we – initially think this isn't abuse. I mean, we don't even think those words. I know. Oh my God, I had a terrible day. You know, I'm just going to like give him this time, give him this space, everything will get better. And then you twist yourself inside out trying to figure out, you know, do I, is it a special meal? Like, what is it I need to do to respond? Uh, I know, it just hurts me. This yeah, it, it is. It's really it. hurtful. And then pretty soon when, when that works, and he sees how how much you will work to prove to get everything be okay, oh. environment be smooth, to look right, to sound right, to speak at the right, whatever it is. When he understands that that tactic works, then he's just going to continue, and that's just going to grow. Okay, um, go ahead. And, and then also that that's a piece that we were also talking about was that we're so busy trying to make things right for him that, um, that I think there's a sense, and I think women are really, really strong. And I think I can only speak for myself on this one, but when I was in my abusive marriage, uh, I remember thinking I could park into the back of my head or the back of my heart, what I wanted, because I just felt like I'm not going to get anything I want in my life if 
things aren't right for him. So he's the priority. And once he becomes the priority and you lose your agency over your own life, Ugh. it's a slippery slope. Yeah. And I was going to, I'm so glad you just brought that up because I was going to bring that up next because sometimes when you're talking, you're talking, I can tell because there's a lot of information just from your expertise and doing this for so long, but every once in a while you drop into a different frequency which comes from personal firsthand experience. Yeah. And I can tell. So I, I kind of want to talk about that because the hot beat of this show is all about storytelling and, and spirituality and how we transform these stories and what we do about it. And so what I find so um, fascinating just about people in general, so um, bear with me because this is going to be like two things here. What I find about fascinating about people in general is that a lot of times, not for everybody, but for a lot of us who are doing this these kinds of um, what I would call spiritual work or heal in the healing arts of whatever yeah. we choose a profession based on something that happened to us in our past. Like I always say, like all my work in some way points back to my mother, right? Points back to my childhood. And so it, that my work currently is really informed by that. So I want, if you're willing to, um, cause I know you have a really powerful story and how I first heard about your story um, is through your brother, who you know I love, my friend in my writing Mensa. And that, you know, these earmuffs are um, about him. That, they're for him. They're a nod to him. That's why they sit back here, the carpenter earmuffs. Um, so, um, so I just thought you were like, no. Oh, I know the story. Yeah, oh, I little, think I do. A little nod to your brother back there. Well, he said, like, he likes it to be, like, so quiet when he yeah. writes. And he said, and he, you know, he's a carpenter, but so he would, like, often put his earmuffs on. And so I got some to remind me of him when I'm writing. But um, in his incredible book, Andre Debus III, for those of you who are listening, um, and your dad, and we're going to talk about this whole thing too, about your brother and your dad. So okay. your dad was the famous Andre Debus, the short story writer. And then your, your brother is Andre Debus III, who, who wrote this incredible book, Townie. Um, and in here, for those of you at home who have not read this book, it's an incredible and a beautiful book. And um, on like somewhere around page 118, he tells this um, heartbreaking and horrific story of, of something that happened to you in Boston one night. Mm -hmm. um, out. And so that's how I first started to learn about it. It was through your brother's book. And then you and I met each other and we started having our own personal conversations. So uh, as much as you're comfortable sharing or willing to share, can you talk a little bit about why, why you do this work and how it's informed by your own personal history? I will, and it's probably a story about the great, uh, the great mystery of the divine more than anything. I mean, yes. but I think yeah. you'll find this part interesting. So, uh, so the part that you're just talking about uh, was that when I was 17, I went into Boston and I got um, basically pulled out of a car by two men who raped me and then left me outside. I. I think it was, you know, it was so funny. I was just trying to figure out the date the other day. Pretty sure it was Valentine's Day. And uh, they dumped me out somewhere near the Northeastern campus and with, you know, and here are your clothes. So I was just, you know, naked, frozen, tundra, Boston. And so I'm just giving some context. We can talk yeah. about that later. But so that's a piece that happened to me. The next piece that happened to me was, uh, 22 years old, got married to a man who was very abusive, very physically abusive, um, really made me feel, and that, you know, in the beginning part of that relationship, I felt so special. I felt so safe. I felt secure. I felt loved. And I would say within a year, 
I was a shadow of who I once was. And I just uh, was- Can I ask you something? Can I ask yeah. you something? Were, yeah. you, were you aware that you were a shadow of who you once yeah. were? No, it was really, it was really after the fact. And I remember, so, you know, this is a story I've told a lot. I remember, so we lived in California. The rest of my family lived all on the East Coast. And we lived in California and we lived on the top of this mountain and we had this old beat up Toyota truck. And he was a commercial fisherman. He would go out and he'd be gone for days at a time and sometimes weeks at a time, which was a tremendous uh, relief for me. Mm -hmm. I was working at some fast food restaurant, but I was an assistant manager and I was working round the clock and, and that was fine with me too, because I didn't have anybody. And he, he had very successfully literally isolated me from my family. Yes. No telephone at home. Ugh. Um, I would drive 10 or 15 miles down the Ortega highway to San Juan Capistrano to work in this restaurant. And then I, so I'd have my, and I was supervising teenagers. That's who works in fast food restaurants. Yeah. So it's, I wasn't developing this huge, robust uh, network of, of peers. Yes. And then I would drive back up this lonely mountain, back to this little tiny house in, in the middle of the dark woods. And, um, and just, I was scared. I was scared all the time. You were so young, too. I, I mean, was so young. You were a baby. I was a baby. And I remember one day, it was a Sunday morning, and I had to work. And so the community right next to me was uh, Laguna. And someone was interviewing this woman who was opening up a battered woman shelter. Mm -hmm. And I'm listening to this radio interview and I'm driving down and the, had really sketchy brakes on this truck. So I'm like totally focused on this, but I'm hearing dribs and drabs of this interview. Mm -hmm. and she starts talking about who the shelter was for. It was for battered women. And here's what I thought. That is so good that someone is doing that because there must be a lot of people that need those services. Mm. Never once identifying that I was one of them. Mm. Never once thought of myself as abused. Never thought of myself as a victim. I didn't think about it at all. I mean, it wasn't that I tried on the words and, and dismissed them. It was just, it simply wasn't part of what I was thinking about. So it was years later, well, not that many years. I, we were together... I think about five or six years. So years later, I'm divorced. I'm in a, another relationship. I'm very happy. I'm back on the East Coast. My friends and family are around. It's, you know, I feel like, Ooh, wow, I escaped that. I'm mm -hmm. unscathed. Yay. Nicole Brown Simpson got murdered. And oh, I was in California at the time. I remember it. Okay. Distinctly. Yeah, that was impactful. That was a big one for me. That was a big one. Well, it was a, it was interesting because it was a big one for the country, which like I understand on one hand because of our fascination with celebrity and wealth and all of that. And so, you know, I think there's this this belief that if you have all of those things, then how can your life be going badly? Mm -hmm. uh, but there, the other piece that really struck me and what's sad about that is that, you know, women are killed every single day and, mm -hmm. um, you know, they're they're cases are dismissed. So it really lit a fire under me and it really resonated with me. And I wasn't quite sure why it was so important to me, but I started the volunteer training here at the center. 
Mm-hmm. And I went a couple of times and then one thing led to another. Within about a year, I was hired to work here to work with teenagers in high schools. Mm-hmm. As part of my job, I had to go through a training, a 28-hour training so that victims could tell their story and no one could compel me to, to tell their story in court. And I'm taking the training and I'm, it's like domestic violence 101 and I'm driving home that night and I realize I'm having such a delayed response. I was shaky. I felt like I was in shock. I couldn't catch my breath. I was having a little bit of an anxiety attack. Um, The next week, and then, you know, I had a good night's sleep, woke up, dismissed it. Couple weeks later, I'm in a session about sexual assault, and I'm having the same physical oh. reactions. Mm. And on my way home, I think I was talking to a friend. I think the next weekend or so, we went out to dinner, and I'm telling her, "This is this is isn't this weird?" She said, "Yeah, but that's what happened to you." And it it wasn't until that moment that I actually felt the experience. I had so intellectualized and kind of compartmentalized and put it off somewhere else. Like, okay, that was something that happened to me with bad chapter, end of story. Well, it's not an end of story. You know, it needs to be processed. It needs to be felt. It needs to be understood. And I needed to understand what delivered me into his arms. Mm -hmm. What, uh, what, how did I compromise my life and who I am? Mm-hmm. And then how did, how did I get out and why? Yeah. Like, yes. what was my big vision? And so when you, so you're right. Yes. The work that I do has everything to do with what I've lived. Yes. But I was so unconscious for so long. And, uh, and so it is a great testament to the human spirit because, you know, when you want to protect yourself, you can totally numb well, out. Let me tell you something. I'm working with I'm working with a woman right now um, to deal with my irritable bowel symptoms. Mm-hmm. And one one day she said to me, "You know, this is really important because um, this was you know your irritable bowel was basically how your little girl, uh, the one who was so traumatized." And I'm like, "Excuse me." She's like, "Karen, like you were traumatized," and I was like, "Like some part of my brain was like I was." Because yes, I understood, like I tell my stories all the time. I knew there was trauma, but I think some part of my ego mind, first of all, I believe my subconscious took all that stuff and buried it, not so discreetly because hello, my IBS, but it did as much as it could for as long as it could because like exactly what you're saying, it's a protective mechanism to keep you alive and so that you can survive, which is very powerful. And if it doesn't, get dealt with because I talk with my clients all the time about delayed grief, (laughs) like delayed shock. Like there's all this stuff that's happening and it's so important that we understand it, but there's a part of part of the younger versions of ourselves. And I think there's something very deep about we don't want to be associated in our own mind as a victim. Absolutely. I think not as a victim. And then I think also, yeah, we don't want to be, we don't want to, certainly don't want to think of ourselves as a victim. The other thing that was going on for me was I think there was a sneaking suspicion 
that, you know, what if I deserved it? What if I was oh, yeah. those things? And I think part of the fear of actually looking at that time in my life and how I got there, I think that part of that was about, um, what if I look at this really closely and find that I'm not at all who I think I am, that mm. he actually knew me better. And yes. I remember as a young woman going to bed some nights, just sobbing, 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 and thinking that he knew more about me than I did. Woo! And I, you know, I think there was a huge, that was a huge piece for me was, was confronting the fear of what if he's right. Well, I'm so glad that you did because your courage to look at these things, not just for yourself, because look, here's the deal. Doing the work that you do, you've got to have some sort of spiritual superpowers to be able to, because it's sacred space that you're holding. I mean, it's like accountability. There's so many levels and layers to what you guys do over there. And it's so necessary and it's so important. And I just know there's nothing like talking to somebody um, like, so I spoke at this event uh, on Saturday, um, this past, I don't know when this episode's going to air, but so we're doing this in real time. I was really transparent. So I just spoke. Wait, can I pause event. you for one second? I still yeah. can't see you. And it's so distracting to me. All right. I'm going to pause. So I'm going to pause. I've not answered my phone yet. So I'm just going to go get them. All right. I'm going to pause. Okay. And we're back. <laughs> So um, what were you just saying right now? You were telling me. Well, you were actually just about to talk about this event that you did last oh, time. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, thank you. I'm like, you're like me. You were talking. Okay, <laughs> so I, I just did this event. And one of the things that happens is <clears throat> after I tell, I didn't go into my whole story. I told different stories. But I actually talked about different times in my life when I had been threatened by men and things that had gone on. Somebody put a gun to my head, this whole thing. And um, when you tell a story like that or stories about people who know about my mom's murder, whatever, afterwards, women always come up to me or people come up to me with their stories. Mm -hmm. And so there's nothing like when you have had something awful or traumatic or tragic or brutal or whatever, uh, violent, because that's really what this is what like that. Let's just call it what it is. This is just right. violence. Right. And so, uh, and I always say, it's no surprise that the healing arts and yoga and spirituality were such a draw to me because the, the whole foundation of yoga is ahimsa, which is nonviolence. It's like, duh, like, like eventually, but inevitably I was going to make my way to something like that. Um, and it's also, you know, part of my veganism. So anyways, people come up to me and they tell me these stories. And I think there's nothing as comforting as when another person can say, I understand. And you know it's because they had the same, like it may, the details of the story may be different, but suffering is suffering. And if there's a particular thread that runs through it, like a river runs through it that connects it all. So I just know that you have a deeper sense, like how perfect that you're the one who is spearheading this, like the work that you do, like, you, you know, you've been recognized in the field. You were named champion of change by the White House in 2011. 2016, Woman of the Year, um, you were uh, invited to attend the first summit of the United State of Women. Joe Biden thinks you're amazing. He invited you to the White House and you currently serve as a member of the Massachusetts Governor's Council on Sexual and Domestic Violence. Like you just do so much and you're like such a deeply, not only again, smarty pants, but personally affected and personally um, can understand. And I think your deep compassion and understanding makes a huge difference in the work that you do. 
Thank you. You know, I remember thinking, so I thought about the, the, that drive down that mountain thinking that that domestic violence shelter was, you know, how wonderful that that woman was going to open that and how that didn't relate to me. I thought about that so many times mm -hmm. here since I've been doing this work because I think about, so what, what could what could I have possibly have heard that morning that would have made me understand it was me? Yes. And, and then are there things that we are or are not saying that convey messages to survivors that we are here for them, that we're not judging, that everything is confidential, that we have no expectation that you're going to leave him, that you're going to, you know, take the next step. We're not going to tell you what to do. You spent a good long time of your life already being told what to do. What we want to do is help stabilize her and give her a hand and help her rise up in her own life to begin to decide what those next steps are. And so I think that's, that's part of, I think that's probably why we're also doing prevention work, why we're also working with men, why we're also working in other communities to help them with homicide prevention work, because we can't tackle it from just one perspective because it's not it is it is systemic i mean just like racism yeah. just like sexism just like homie it's all built into the patriarchal system that has existed for so long and so yeah. so the work that you do i think is so powerful and it's also and i mean this in a positive way it's disruptive it's like yeah. it makes you it, like it stops you it like smacks you out of your stupid oh, she's like a, like a little violent little violent uh, language. <laughs> <laughs> I say, it's, you know, it wakes, language. let's say it pours cold water on you, like it, right. wakes, it wakes you up <clears throat> and to, to really think about like how we might be participating. And that's the other thing too, is like, we have to look at like, how do we participate like within this culture? And I do it like, I'm a kid from Lawrence. So I know that my language, I laugh, I laugh sometimes because I'm like, oh my God, like how I live is like sometimes I find myself saying things from like my childhood because they're just like in the DNA. Like, I'm like, I would never hit a per I would never hit anybody, right? But I use like this violent language. So that's the thing is like looking at the quality of our speech, looking at the quality of our thoughts, looking at the quality of um, the magazines and the movies and porn and like all the, all the stuff that's happening and how are we participating in the system? Because I don't think we often take a personal look like it's so easy to sit at home and i say this all the time um you know i remember um when you're a little kid or whatever you're just moving through the world and stuff like that hasn't happened to you yet you see a thing on the news and the tv and you go oh that's too bad mm -hmm. that's a shame and then you're on with your life but when you have a personal experience of violence you start to quickly understand the exponential effect that that has not just on the person who is hurt, harmed, killed, but their immediate family, the community, and it goes out and out and out and out. Absolutely, it's, it's all concentric circles. You know, I think about when people, when we first started doing prevention work, people said, you know, people ask me, are you going a little adrift from your mission? I mean, you're here to help battered women. Right. And I remember saying, listen, a child who is living in a home that is abusive is going into, a, into a, the classroom and they're making choices about, they, they are in partly reaction mode about, you know, they heard a terrible 
violent fight last night. They're in school now. They're not, they didn't sleep well. There's no way they're going to be able to focus on their work that day. Mm -hmm. And as they grow, they either become more and more invisible and their life becomes smaller and smaller because they just don't want to be found out and they don't want to explain what happens at home and um, they don't want to express their feelings because they're afraid it's just going to take mm. over their lives. Mm. Or, and this is a spectrum, this happens on a spectrum, but the other end of the spectrum is that kids begin to bully other kids. Yeah, 100%. Their anger and their hurt and their aggression on other weaker kids. And so that's not only affecting that one child, it's affecting the culture in that classroom and in that school, and it builds. If we don't help a family interrupt that cycle and that belief system, then there's a really good chance that that's going to go unchecked, and then soon they're going to graduate from high school, go out into the world, and become the next generation of perpetrators or victims. And 100%. So, hey, that was all about our mission. Like, I'm like, you know, listen, it's all great to say that our vision is, is about uh, creating a culture that where domestic violence doesn't exist. But what are we actually doing? Exactly. Where we weren't really doing anything about it. So um, anyhow, that's, that's my no. thought. I think, yeah, I think it's really important. I, I, I have my own story about that. I'm not going to get into it, but I can just tell you um, there wasn't, um, there wasn't any like punching or hitting uh, in my home, but there was violence. There was like so much screaming and yelling and slamming and things being thrown and people being pushed up against the wall and being poked. And like, it was a fucking war zone in our house. Like it was terrifying as a little kid. And I know that I developed a toughness to like survive it. And there was one instance, I've never really been a bully. I'm, I'm a wicked, I was a, always a wicked sensitive kid um, who was um, touched deeply by injustices. And, um, but there was one girl in our class and I'll never, and the fact that it stayed with me this whole long, this is how I know, uh, her name was Karen White. And I remember she, I believe she was diabetic and the, all the other kids just knew that she was different. So mm -hmm. it made her weak and it made her pray. And so um, when you're getting mercilessly picked on or terrified in your own home, you will act out somehow. And whether that's you do drugs, drink, become bulimic, anorexic, you watch too much porn, you like however you, you, you respond to that stress. And I remember being particularly mean to Karen White one day. I remember being really mean to her. And I remember going home later and crying, like crying, because I, I didn't know why I was doing it. I just knew it felt bad to be picking on somebody. And now, of course, I can psychoanalyze the shit out of what was happening. Right. But at the time, it was like, so I know firsthand, like, that stuff is transferable. If that energy and that fear doesn't have a place to go, it becomes dangerous. Absolutely. And if not dangerous to everyone around you, certainly dangerous to, to yourself. yourself. Yeah. To yourself. You know, yeah. Uh, you talked about my brother, Andre. He and I did a talk um, last year together. And so we did this talk where we were talking about what it was like growing up with a single mom. And you know him. He was perfectly okay to just drive there and do the 45-minute talk without talking too much about it beforehand. I, on the other hand, was like, you know, listen, I think we should do this. I think we should do this. <laughs> 
And uh, so what was really interesting to me at the end of the talk, so we compromised, we, we did a little bit of conversation beforehand, but what we talked about, he talked about the anger about growing up poor, about growing up with a single mom, about having a, a challenging relationship with our dad, mm -hmm. about being made the man of the house at 10 years old, and, and all of those feelings, and how as he became, as he was a teenager, he really showed that outwardly. He worked on building his body. He worked on building strength. And he worked by pounding the crap out of guys. Yes. Who, who beat up bullies or yes. women. Yeah. I, on the other hand, um, turned it all inward. Yes. I, it was about self-hatred. It was about measuring up. It was about being too fat. It was about not being lovable. Mm. It was about, you know, I was trying so hard to just be invisible so yeah. that that no one could hurt me. Oh, and so at the end of our talk, I realized that what we had taken was a very kind of almost stereotypical gendered approach to the way we grew up. Yes. His rage was outward. Mine was inward. But neither one of us, right, neither one of us were grounded. You actually were connected to that higher self. When you bullied Karen White and you went back to your house and you felt terrible and you cried, you were connected to some piece. I worked so hard at disconnecting that piece. He worked so hard at disconnecting that piece. And so, you know, I think our whole adult lives has been about reintegration, making sense of what we lived and, and uh, you know, grateful that we're both still here. Yeah, your brother, you know, his wife, Fontaine, who we both love, always says to him, Andre, you have so much knowledge, like other people's knowledge. Like, it's so funny because I'm about to quote your brother quoting somebody else. But your brother always says, like, and I tell, I say this all the time, not only with my writing, my writing students and stuff, but with my uh, spiritual mentoring clients. Um, we know what happened. Like, we know what happened to us and the people we love. We know what happened. But he always says, what the hell happened? Yes. Yeah. And that's so much of the work that you're doing. We know what happened. We know women are batted and here's the statistics and we know this is going to happen. And da -da. But what the, what the broader scope of the work you do is what the hell is happening. And if yeah. we don't take a look at that, we're in trouble. That's right. And so I'm so happy that, that you do that. And so one of the questions, cause I know we're, we, we only have about an hour or so together, but so I just wrote this down and, and you might say that's too long of an answer from too long of a thing for me to answer. But what I would love for you to know is I want my viewers and my listeners to, to know what are some of the ways that they can help either in general or with literally with your organization, uh, whether it's volunteer, donate money, whatever thing. And what are some of the ways that if anybody like you driving down the mountain, what if somebody is listening to this and they're like, oh shit, I think that's me. So how can people help and how are there ways to get help? So let's talk about the get help first. Yes. So I think if any part of this conversation resonates with somebody, or if one of your listeners is hearing this saying, you know what, I didn't actually put this together, but I think my friend is in an abusive relationship. Um, sometimes those are very difficult conversations to have to close to people, that, you know, when you're close to somebody, um, yeah. it's hard for them to hear you give that feedback and it's hard, it's hard for them to hear it and it's hard to really find the words. 
the beautiful thing about uh, this country, Massachusetts and, Ma and New Hampshire, but every state in our country has a coalition of domestic violence programs okay. in their state. And so one thing you can do, and we do this a lot, is that people will call us and say, listen, I think this is happening to my neighbor and I don't know what to do. And we talk them through it about, you know, how can you help someone else? Um, and then if this is hitting, you know, so hitting home for you and you feel like, you know what, I think I want to explore this. I would say the same thing. Domestic violence organizations are really great. You know, there's this term about belly button to belly button advocacy. It's about truly showing up and being present for someone and just listening to their story. Sometimes it's the first time they ever tell their story. <sighs> They've been told for so long that if you tell you, there will be repercussions. And so for a woman to be able to screw up her courage, particularly after living with, for years with this, to go in, to get a cup of tea, to close the door into a safe place and just be heard. And um, it's the hardest thing, it's the hardest step to take, but it is so important to do so. If that's not something that someone feels comfortable with, I would say call somebody who you trust that you can talk to. Um, I will also give our hotline number, which is 978-388-1888. Uh, and our hotline is 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. And, and you, the beautiful thing is you don't have to identify yourself. You don't have to worry about, um, you know, someone knowing your name and, and repeating this. We are confidential. We are a safe place and we are non-judgmental. We are truly there to hold you in your story. Thank you. Will you repeat that one more time? Because I'm going to copy it too, so I can uh, share it. Okay. 978-388-1888. Yep. Yep. 978-388-1888. You got it. Awesome. And so, um, so that's like really helpful because I think people so often don't know what to do. And I, I remember like after my mother was killed and that was a whole clusterfuck. And it was like, this one didn't, my stepdad didn't want us. And this one didn't do this. So we ended up going to live with an aunt and uncle that I did at the time. I did not know them. I didn't remember how I knew them. I actually thought somehow I was related to the aunt, but I was actually related to the uncle. <laughs> such a strange, it was such a strange and, and terrible time. Uh, and God bless them for their kind, compassionate hearts and taking in two bereaved and grieving, crazy teenage girls. Um, but it was, it was a tough time. And we lived in a triple deca as a lot of Massachusetts kids do. And we lived on the first floor and above us, there was a woman. Um, and I don't know if it was her partner, her husband. I don't know what the situation was. Mm -hmm. I knew there was some drinking that went on up there because for like like extra money, I would clean her house like on the weekends and stuff like that to get some dough for, to go out drinking, of course. Yeah, right. But anyway, anyways, anyways, besides the point. We're um, in Massachusetts. Yeah, exactly. We know we're mass holes. We know we're dealing yeah. with. So I would go up. But so one night I was lying in bed and my sister and I had these, we lived in this tiny little room. We had bunk beds. I was always on the top bunk and I could just hear the noises upstairs that there was a brutal war going on. And it sounded like things were being thrown. It sounded like people were wrestling or being slammed up against things. And she was screaming for help. 
and I was in bed and I just, it was, I was still probably PTSD from my mother's murder. Right. And I just hear the, these sounds of like help and, uh, and I was shaking. I was yes. equally terrified and pissed. Cause I'm like, why isn't anybody doing anything? So I remember hopping off the bed and running into the kitchen and screaming at my aunt and uncle, if you don't go up there right now, I'm going up there. I'm going to go pound on the door. And they're, they didn't want to get involved. Right. And I was like, this is not happening. You better go upstairs or call the car. You've got to do something. And I'm like, in my mind, I'm thinking I was, I was aware of this at the time. Why am I the only one who thinks this is a problem? Right. Is it just so socially acceptable in our culture or we're afraid to get involved? Like, what is that mindset of the bystanders? Well, you know, I, I'm always encouraging people to go from bystander to upstander because uh, you're totally right. There are way too many people who are comfortable not stopping to ask someone, <sighs> are you okay? Do you need help? Um, anything, you know, my dad was in a wheelchair, as you know, and so I have a special place in my heart for folks when I see them in a wheelchair and they're at a door and they're, you know, they're navigating the sidewalk and they're trying to carry a bag. And I always stop and ask, do you need help? Nine times out of 10, they say no, because I also understand the fierce independence and I want to do this on my own. I'm not a baby. Yes. I just don't have legs. And, um, I think there's a fear that somehow the violence is going to spin out of control and that you're going to get sucked into that vortex as well. I think that's, I, so I think there's part of that is about self-preservation. Yes. The other part is I'm going to have to see these people on the steps every single day. And it's going to be so embarrassing and mortifying. And she'll be so embarrassed if she knows that I know. So it's that kind of stuff too, this kind of over-concern for what happens after this. That's fascinating. Um, yes. And you're right. But, but yeah, you're totally right. And I, you know, it's interesting because I think that, you know, I think part of the Me Too movement and this kind of national conversation about toxic masculinity and sexual harassment and sexual abuse, I think it's also creating a whole group of people who are more interested in being activists that before they were comfortable and, you know, they felt certainly sad if they heard a story but they weren't really aware of the breadth and the depth of the issue. And I think as people have kind of woken up to that, I think they've also been really actively looking for their role. Like, what is it I can do? Not everybody is Karen Kenny, who's, who's eager, who's absolutely willing in a heartbeat, you know, to knock on the door and say, hey, stop it. Other people might pick up the phone and dial 911. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. Other people might wait till the next day and he goes off to work and they go up and say, I'm really sorry. I heard that fight last night and here's some information on an organization that might help you. And I'm happy to drive you if you like. So there's lots of ways to be of service. And I think it's, you know, and it's, you don't want to dishonor people to ask them to step into a boxing ring. Right. Um, but there are lots of other ways to do it. Yes. So you'd also ask a question about the center, like what can you do to help the center in yes. our work? And so, you know, yes, of course it's donate. And, you know, we raise about a million dollars a year in private fundraising just to continue the work. You know, the beautiful thing about what we do is, you know, we're really trying to get to the root cause yeah. of 
domestic violence and oppression and patriarchy. And we're also very aware of all of those other issues that are in play with domestic violence, like poverty and homelessness and oh, you know, yeah. worrying about your food and how are you going to pay your bills and how do I find a job? He hasn't let me work for 20 years, so what am I going to do? Um, so we understand that domestic violence is complicated. Uh, it requires a lot of resources, and those aren't resources that are funded by the government. So donating is always really, really important. Uh, but the next piece is, is also volunteering. A lot of people are called to the organization because their heart says, I want to sit face to face and I want to help. Yes. Because I've got skills. I'm happy to, to stand with someone in a courtroom and, and be their rock while they are telling the judge what's happening at home. So uh, once a year, we have a volunteer training and it's a 28 hour training that protects um, the survivor. It's a confidentiality piece so that- When does that happen, Suzanne? It's just finishing now. Okay. Uh, you know, the more that we have people uh, call and say they wanna do it, then the more likely we are to hold a second one. Great. Um, and, uh, and then the third thing is just really, you know, stay in touch with us. Uh, you know, sign up to be part of our mailing list to hear about what we're doing. Uh, come walk every single October. We have a big walk against violence and um, it's a really wonderful event, but it's a great way to show support for survivors that you know this is happening in the community and you want to you want to walk to raise money to provide services. And so here's another idea. So I know you guys do the walk in October. You also do the, the white breakfast, right? Don't white, you do a white ribbon breakfast? Yeah. yeah. So that's about engaging boys and men in the fight against violence against women and girls. So it's really, we highlight and, and showcase the work, the prevention work that's happening in the schools, which is really wonderful. Like we've, we paid money and hired pros to come in and do the thing. But the truth is what people really want to hear about is the kids experience. Like what yes. was it like before you did this program? How has it changed you? And, and what do you want the adults in this room to know? And uh, I have to say, I don't talk to many people that go to that breakfast that don't come out and say, oh my God, those kids. And so that's in March. And, and we usually have a lot more um, men at that event as well, because we yes. really focus on, on getting men to help us in this work. I think it's so important. And one of the things I just wanted to say to the viewers is that, um, you know, you might not always be able to go to these events. You might not be able to give money depending on your circumstances or your, your time. But that's what like I felt compelled to. And I'm like, I'm going to do my own event. Cause I asked my, when, when something is happening in the world that stirs me up um, or, you know, whatever, one of my causes, I'm like, I just, I'm just, in a, I want to be extra helpful. I'll be like, what can I do? I'm like, what do I know how to do? I don't really have that many skills, but I'm like, I know how to do an event. I know how to like do a little thing. So, um, one of the ways, so this is why I'm saying, I'm just inviting our listeners to be creative. Um, if you want to give money, amazing. You want to give your time and volunteer, amazing. You want to go to one of those events, great. But there's so many ways to be helpful. You can do a shout out on social media. You can share the information, like send somebody a link, like whatever the thing is, do a post about it. But so I'm doing an event. Uh, well, I've been asked um, by the, because you guys have a chapter in Amesbury too, don't you? So we actually have four offices, two in Lawrence. One in Amesbury. My hometown. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, we also have one in Amesbury. Okay. So you guys who are watching at home, and I'm going to do a shout out about this. The Amesbury Chamber of Commerce is having me come speak on October 1st, um, 530 to 730. 
at Stage 2 Cinema Pub in Amesbury. It's 109 Main Street in Amesbury. 10 bucks to get in to come hang out with me, to listen to me tell stories. Uh, the event is called Your Story to Your Glory, Choosing Love Over Fear in Life and Business. And all the proceeds uh, go to the Gene Geiger Crisis Center because I, they were like, will you come speak? And I'm like, okay. It's always like, it, and what's the, what's the playoff, right? And yeah, 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 exposure, whatever. But I want it to be purposeful. And they're like, well, if, you, if we can do a fundraiser at the door. And I was like, you're in Amesbury? I'm like, gee, let's do it. So I'm so happy to be able to support my, my beautiful friend who I love. Um, and so you guys, there's lots of ways to do this. And so at the end of this, like on the podcast page on my website, there will be all of Suzanne's information, how yeah. to get in touch, like the, the website, I'll put the number, I'll put the number that we wrote down for the hotline. There's going to be lots of ways to get in touch with her. And then Suzanne, I always have this like this little quirky question and I'll, and I'll let you go because I asked, um, yesterday, um, I interviewed my friend Kate Northrup. Her mom is Christiane Northrup. I know you, you yeah. know, yeah, you know who she is. So, uh, Kate just came out with a book called do less and um so i had her on the pod and i asked uh and, and it was so fascinating her response and she said thank you so much for asking this question nobody ever asked this question i think sometimes people are afraid to and she said thank you for the way that you asked it because what a lot of people do is they assume that your experience was like this and so they'll lead with it must have been amazing too and she's like and instead so here's my question Okay. What was it like? Because I see you as a rock star and a little, like, you're famous, I think, in your own field of work. I see you as a badass and a, and a rock star. Um, and I also know that you grew up, ultimately, with a famous dad. Mm -hmm. And then sub subsequently, I don't know if I'm saying that right, um, a famous brother in the writing world, right? So um, your brother wrote the book House of Sand and Fog. It was an Oprah pick. Here we are. just had over. We were together that night. You and yes, I. Your, your family has so lovingly adopted me. Your mom sent me an email calling me her accidental daughter. It just oh. made me cry. Just made me cry. But anyways, you got your family is just so so kind and sweet to me. So what was it like growing up with a famous dad and then now kind of like a famous brother? I'm always fascinated, like because that has a resonance of its own. So if you feel like answering that, I'm just so curious. I do. I mean, so first of all, I, I had zero idea that my dad was well known. <laughs> you know, growing up in this blue collar neighborhood in Haverhill with my dad was a teacher. What I really saw him at what, as was a, a poor struggling teacher who bartended at nights on the weekends to make mm -hmm. ends meet and who would sequester himself three hours a day in his office so he could write. And every once in a while he'd come out with a book and yeah. he'd sign it to us and, and give it to us and say, oh, thanks dad. And- um, When did it occur to you, like my dad's kind of a legend in the school. short story world? Well, high school is all of a sudden I realized, wow, son of a gun, uh, most kids' dads don't write. Number yeah. And then I was, I think I was in college it was sometime in my 20s, and I remember meeting a random person. I was went into a bookstore. I, you know, was writing a check. They saw my last name, and the woman smiled, and she goes, um, you're not related to the author, are you? And she expected me to say, no, no. Mm -hmm. And I said, yeah, that's my dad. And she said, oh, and then she started to, you know, oh, let me tell you. And <laughs> after, after his car accident, you know, when I saw all the support from oh. all those writers who are very, very, who are household names. 
when I saw them come to his aid and that they were in awe of his ability and his story, that's when I understood, well, my dad, I was always afraid he was going to be one of these artists who, if he was ever discovered, it would be after his death. Like my childhood fear about him and I really wanted to protect him. So when I realized, you know, when he was in his forties that he had this reputation and this, uh, this body of work, it was really an amazing thing. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. Your dad has influenced so many writers. Like Dennis Lehane, like loves your dad. Yes. Yeah. It's like raw. There's like this whole, like the writing world is fascinating in and of itself. But when you understand like, there is such a great respect for your for your dad's work. Yes. You know what I yeah. mean? It's pretty cool. It's, it's pretty very cool. cool. And then Andre, I mean, for <laughs> me, he's my little brother, you know? He's we're 13 months apart. I love everything he's written. I'm impressed with his his unbelievable ability to get to the desk nearly oh. every day of his life. Given and you know what his schedule's like. It's yeah cuckoo crazy he's so busy but he's dedicated he has integrity he's a true artist um he works so hard and so i you know i have a very different kind of relationship with andre and that kind of fame because i i feel i'm not his mother i'm his older sister but i feel like you know i was along for the birth and i watched him struggle we lived together when we were in our 20s and yes. you know and he was fighting the good fight he also was you know bartending and writing <laughs> every day and he was you know wondering should i get a masters and and it's been nothing but wonderful to see him just work so hard and to also be recognized most writers as you know don't have that experience and i'm, yes. I'm really happy that he has that experience and not only that like your brother I, and i'm wicked biased because i love the shit out of your brother but your brother is one of the most decent and like i mean i mean again my history with him starts like you know many years after yours but just i i always say to andre i learned so much about how to be a writer through him like the craft of writing but I also learned so much about the decency and the big heartedness of being a human being when I watch him in action. And your brother is one of the most charming people like ever. I always like, I just, I, I love just watching. I'm like, yeah, I go to his book readings, but I already read the book. I know what they say, right? But I'm like, I just can't wait to watch him interact with people because people are like obsessed with him. And I just think it's so funny because he's so lovely. But, but let's say this, your parents had a particular I don't know what was going on in your family, but all of you came out with some badassery. I mean, your brother Jeb is like a genius in his own way. He is. And like, and, yes. Right? I mean, he is like certified, I, I mean, but multi, multi like talented. Like, well, he's a musician, an artist, a builder, a writer. I mean, he's just, he, he's, 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 he's like a Renaissance man. And yeah. And then even your half sisters, like they're blazing in New York. You're like doing like, so there's something in the genes in your family. Yeah. And my my other, our youngest sister, oh. the Fulbright scholar. I mean, she's been doing work all across the country, the world with, uh, you know, countries that are interesting and try, interested to try to figure out how to do a better job when refugees are knocking on their doors and they need safe harbor and she works with them on that. I mean, it's really kind of amazing. I think 
you know, you've read the story in town and you've read about this kind of, you know, the poverty, the, the, we were both parented in the sixties and seventies where it was kind of like anything goes <laughs> uh, we became adults way too. We, we were yes. exposed to way too much beyond our years. And so there was a lot that was wrong with how we grew up. What was yeah. right about the way we grew up was we were surrounded by books. We were surrounded by creativity. My parents valued money. I mean, not money, music, music, good food, social activism, uh, books. They were, uh, they exposed us to those so early. And I just think that that went a long, long way to kind of creating this little tribe. And we all found our way somehow. Yeah, it's remarkable. Your brother once said that he still gets his book recommendations from your mom. Yeah. Like oh. your mom is so well read. She's so smart. Your mother's a little firecracker. I love her little, yeah. I love your mom. She's a hot shit. Yeah, she is. <laughs> and yeah, there's something about like, you know, people will often say to me like, you know, would you change anything? And I always say like, look, I, I, I obviously, I wish my mother was, I had my mom back, blah, blah, blah. But my overall childhood, the richness of that experience, blue collar kid, not any money, like having to be tough, having to struggle, having to go through all those experiences. There's a, there's a magic in that. And, and there's a song, it's so fascinating. There's a song by, there's a band uh, called Kings of Leon. Oh, and, I love Kings of Leon. Yeah, me too. And they have a song and the words are, and I'm like, I, I hope I can get their permission to put it in my memoir somewhere. But it says, just drink the water where you came from. And I really believe there's something about where we came from. Like people make fun of mass holes all the time in Massachusetts kids and all this stuff, but there is something that goes on being brought up at the time and place that we did. And uh, it's creating some really powerful stuff in the world. And just thank you so much for saying yes. Like I, I, I was talking at this event on Saturday and I was like, you have been given an individual curriculum. You have a divine assignment. The world needs help. God sent you. Yes. And like you said yes to your assignment, Suzanne. I mean, you are really doing important and powerful, impactful, influential, inspiring work. Like I, I always say, I do not have anybody on the show as a guest. I'm wicked stingy with my real estate because I only have one guest a month. Uh, all the other shows are, are, are solo shows. And I'm like, I only have people on that I love, that I think are kick-ass, that are doing remarkable things in the world. And I always say, I use that word purposefully because it's worthy making a remark about. So mm -hmm. just thank you, thank you, thank you for, um, you know, Course in Miracles says, you know, you are the light of the world and you are definitely bringing the, your light to the world, but you're also shining a light on a very dark and shadowy subject that most people are afraid to look at. So I'm on behalf of, I'm just getting verklempt, uh, on behalf of my mom, on behalf of my mom and just all the people in the world who have been affected by this, just thank you so much for being so courageous. Um, and committed and devoted like it's it's so important i just i know you must hear it all the time but i really want you to receive that from my heart to yours well thank you i too am verklempt <laughs> and uh you know i wish we were i'd give you a nice big hug uh but thank you and i thank you for your work and for uh shining your light 
And um, thank you for this. This was really wonderful and it was great to see you. And I hope I see you before October 1st. Yeah, I hope so too. I'm, <laughs> I, I'm sure, I think Fontaine probably has a show coming up in May or something. I'll, I'll find my way May over. 11th. Like, May yeah. 11th, I'm going. Yeah. Yes. Oh, you are going? Yeah. All right. So I'll probably try to go to that because then inevitably we, we end up back at the Debuse clan house and I get to hug everybody and see Mary <laughs> and everybody. You know, so it's so fun. So, so thank you for that reminder. And you guys who are listening at home, um, you know, this is one of those things, you know, you, you listen to my episode, become the helper. So if any part of this interview like stirred you, got you interested or curious, like Google this shit, like get on the Google Find out how you can participate. And look, it might not, this might not be your particular calling, but it, I always say even a buck helps if you want to donate, if you want to do a shout out or something like that. We, we I always say like the beautiful Ram Das says, you know, we're all just walking each other home. Mm-hmm. And so this yeah. is the work. We, we don't do it alone. We all get there together. So thank you so much for tuning in, you guys. Thank you, Suzanne, for coming along for the ride and for answering all the questions and just for being so amazing. And I know why, like, I already know why, like, Joe Biden thinks you're amazing and you get all these awards <laughs> because, but you are, like, you're a leader, like, you're leading the charge. And we needed somebody strong and brave to go first. So thank you for using your voice uh, and for just like doing what you're doing. And so you guys at home, thanks for tuning in. Uh, You know, just listen to the outro. You'll find out how you can connect with me if you want to. But I appreciate your time. I appreciate your love. Um, I see you. I celebrate you. I love you. And wherever you go, may you be a blessing. Bye. you guys thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the karen kenny show (laughs) i super duper appreciate your time friendship and support and look if something that i shared from my heart today somehow landed in yours i'd love to hear about it so please tag me on facebook or instagram or ig stories or wherever the cool kids are hanging out these days and let me know what your favorite pot was or what you found most helpful. You can find me over at Karen Kenny Live. That's Karen, K-E-N-N-E-Y-L-I-V-E. And if you're digging what I'm saying and you want to hear more, I'd be wicked grateful if you could go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review because you guys, that's how you'll help me to keep spreading the love. And if you can think of someone that could benefit from hearing this episode, please share it with them. I'd also love to stay connected with you. So if the feeling is mutual, please go to karenkenny.com backslash freebie and download my free guide to building your spiritual team. Until next time, my brothers and sisters, keep living in the fearless flow. Know that I see you, I appreciate you, and I love you. And wherever you go, may you be a blessing.